Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week a two-part special on science that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. We're going to focus on what happens inside a piece of discarded chewing gum and the strange changes that occur to it over a short period of time. How an invasion and colonization by outside forces. And we find out about other ignoble prizes. Now for scientists, one of the most important events of the year occurs in September. In this latter half of the year, scientists, part of the international community, gather to celebrate the finest achievements of scientific research across the world. This international spectacle is often surprisingly dominated by the Japanese. In fact, one has won this award for the last 15 years in a row. Japan, quite a powerhouse. But of course, researchers winning these prizes can come from all across the world. And it is quite prestigious and also financially lucrative to win this prize, because after all, you can win $10 trillion as a prize. Well, the prize money is in Zimbabwe dollars, so due to inflationary values, this is not worth very much at all, but it's still a substantial prize. Now, you probably guessed right now that I'm not talking about the Nobel Prizes awarded in Stockholm. I'm in fact talking about the far more advanced and superior prize system, the Ig Nobel Prizes. Now, these were founded all the way back in 1991 by Mark Abrams, who was at the time the editor and co-founder of the Annals of Improbable Research, and also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Irreputable Results. Now, this ceremony was created to honour and celebrate science that is somewhat unusual. Originally at the time, Abrams first put it as research of discoveries that cannot or should not be reproduced. But so it is. But over time, in the last 30 years, it's more evolved to its current motto, to honour the achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. Because that's really what the Ig Nobel Prize is about. Sometimes seemingly absurd research that also can yield some pretty surprising results. Now, over the 30-year period, as I mentioned before, Japan has won one for the last 15 years in a row. And that record was maintained, of course, this year. But other countries are well positioned in these prizes too. And the winners as well aren't just joke scientists or people doing things for a laugh. A lot of the time, the research can be quite significant and important. For example, Sir Andre Gein was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize all the way back in year 2000 for levitating a frog via magnetism. Now, that seems pretty funny and pretty absurd to do so. But all the way later in 2010, Sir Andre Gein was actually awarded a Nobel Prize in physics for his work in electromagnetic properties of graphene. It's not hard to see the through line between levitating a frog with magnets and electromagnetic properties of graphene. Now, he's only the individual as of now to have received both a Nobel and an Ig Nobel, but important to remember that he got that Ig Nobel first. Now, the awards are presented in a ceremony in Harvard University, and then there's some subsequent public lectures at MIT. And if you're in the United States, you can hear these as part of a national public radio broadcast. They're also broadcast online for you to go to check out if you want to. And trust me, this ceremony isn't boring. It's lots of fun with gags and humorous presentations of the research. It's a good, fun way of showcasing science that might have otherwise just been buried in the depths of a paper. 
Previous years have included everything from the aforementioned levitations of frogs to dung beetles navigating using the stars, along with a lot of other strange questions that you may not have thought of answering. Way back in 2006, there was a study which showed malaria mosquitoes are equally attracted to the smell of a certain type of cheese than they are to the smell of human feet, obviously because of the similarities between them. That's a bit silly and something quite laughable, but an Nobel Prize was awarded in the area of biology for that. But as a direct result of that particular paper, trials have been done with actually traps baited with this particular type of cheese in strategic locations in certain regions of Africa to combat the epidemic of malaria, i.e. get the mosquitoes directed towards the cheese and away from people's feet. That's a pretty funny but also fascinating usage of this research. The link between the cheese smell and the smell of human feet often joked about, but by the nature of the fact that researchers proved this in a scientific way, they could use this to help drive malaria numbers down in key regions. So just because science may sound like a joke, it doesn't necessarily have to be implemented as one. And it's okay to laugh at scientific research, especially if it also makes you think afterwards. And that's the whole beauty of the Ig Nobel Prizes. It's not revolutionising some grand theory of the universe, or rather just a small corner of one, a really niche question with a pretty interesting result. And isn't that what science is about? Furthering knowledge one little step at a time. So let's meet this year's Ig Nobel laureates. Unlike the Nobel Prizes, the Ig Nobel Prizes don't feature a fixed list of categories. Yes, the main ones appear consistently, but sometimes you end up with some surprise bonus ones, and this year is no exception. Of course, the Biology Prize is a mainstay, and this year was won by Suzanne Schutz, analysing the various types of purring, chirping, chittering, trilling, all the strange noises that a cat might make to really model the interaction between cats and humans and how they communicate. And this recognises her achievement over many years, publishing numerous papers on exactly this topic. Now, the Ecology Prize was awarded to Leila Satari, Alba Gulen, Angela Vidal-Vedru and Manuel Pocar for analysing, using genetics and different types of studies, how bacteria colonises and thrives in wads of discarded chewing gum and how that varies all the way across the world. Now remember that one, because we'll come back to it later. Now a large international team of researchers all worked together to be awarded a chemistry prize for chemically analyzing the air inside movie theaters to test if the odors produced by the audience are actually reliable indicators of what's going on on the screen. Now in economics, Pavlo Blatavsky was awarded the Ig Nobel Prize for discovering that the obesity of a country's politicians may potentially be used as a good indicator for the level of corruption in that particular country. Lut Oldatkum, Lippert and Hornberger won the Medicine Prize for demonstrating that a unique or especially unique way of decongesting one's nose and improving nasal breathing. Well, 
that is by undertaking sexual intercourse. The Peace Prize was awarded to Becerus, Nalvay and Carrier for testing the strange hypothesis that humans evolved beards to protect themselves directly from punches to the face. And trust me, if you have a large thick beard, it's not entirely fun to receive a punch or to give one. Now, the Physics Prize and the Kinetics Prize are linked and were awarded to two different groups of researchers, and you'll see why they were linked in a minute. The Physics Prize was won by Corbetta, Musin, Lee, Benzi, and Toshi for conducting experiments to learn why pedestrians don't constantly collide with other pedestrians. By contrast, Murakumi, Felicani, Nishiyama and Nishanari won the Kinetics Prize for conducting experiments to learn why actually pedestrians do sometimes collide with each other. The Entomology Prize was awarded to Mulleran, Grothaus, Hammond and Lambden for the research on a way of getting rid of cockroaches on submarines. And finally, the Transportation Prize was awarded to a large international team who really investigated the safest way to transport a rhinoceros. Not just any rhinoceros. If it's safer to transport an airborne rhinoceros, right way up or upside down. And believe me, the photos on that airlift are pretty spectacular. So that's the awardees out of the way. And believe me, they have all contributed greatly to scientific knowledge across the world and deserve the recognition. But now we're going to spend a little bit of time diving into a few interesting prizes that are really worth further discussion. And that is of course the Ecology Prize first, and then into the complicated area of physics and kinetic. start with the prize for ecology awarded to Leila Sitare, Alba Goulen, Angela Vidal-Vedou and Manuel Porcar. Now as mentioned they published a paper in the journal Scientific Reports about a detailed study they did which collected discarded pieces of chewing gum from countries scattered all the way across the world. And there's good reasons why they were investigating chewing gum in particular, because it's been a feature of humankind for much longer than you would think. In fact, you could probably say that chewing gum was one of the first oral techniques for even really the invention of the toothbrush as you would recognize it today, because chewing gums have been used for thousands of years since wood tar from the Mesolithic and Neolithic periods have been found with teeth impressions into them which suggests they were used in teeth cleaning as well as early versions of almost a teeth adhesive to fix chips or damage. Now, what you would call and recognize as chewing gum didn't really start to get introduced to the market until the late 19th century. And now you can find chewing gum all across the world. It's estimated that Iran and Saudi Arabia are some of the countries with the highest rate of consumption, with around 80% of the population regularly chewing gum. Now, what's interesting about, on a chemical level, the chewing gum itself is that they're generally composed of two phases. The water-insoluble phase, the gummy base that you'll find as a major element, and then the water-soluble phase, which is normally made from sugars, like in sugar-chewing gums or sugar alcohols, such as polyols in the sugar-free gums. Now, you'll often also find them a solid coating on the top, which will have the flavor release, as well as some protection to make sure it doesn't degrade. And you could consider that perhaps a third phase. 
Now the main part of the chewing gum itself, that gummy base, 20-30% of the total volume normally, that's not edible and it's not digestible either. But you can get that chewing process underway with it. Now that gummy base is normally made from either natural polymers like latex or wax or synthetic polymers like polyvinyl acetate. So that's what's in the gummy side, but that's only 30%. Then you've got the rest, which is that water soluble and that third paste, that flavor release and other elements in there as well. These sweeteners are more than half of the chewing gum overall composition. And they also enable some pretty interesting results because when you discard a chewing gum, some of that stuff has already gone. That water-soluble stuff generally has been chewed away or consumed more or less. What you're left behind is that gummy base and that wasted piece of chewing gum, if it's not properly discarded, can cost a lot of money and cause a lot of damage. In the UK, it's estimated around 70 million euros of damage are cost onto the streets every year just due to discarded chewing gum. And that's not to mention, of course, the damage potentially to historic buildings or areas undertaking conservation. Now, when you leave this chewing gum on the ground, it leaves some pretty interesting things behind. The thing is, that water-soluble layer isn't really that much present anymore, but the gum is. And the gum has been smooshed around inside your mouth. So traveling on that piece of gum in this really sticky container are often, of course, traces of the consumer's DNA, but more importantly, a small part of the mouth's microbiome. Because the mouth has its own microbiome, and you've basically squished that piece of gum around in it for a long time and probably trapped some of those microbes inside the gum. And that means that the contents of this discarded thing can actually pick up some of your mouth's microbiome. Because after all, it's a wet, sticky thing discarded on the ground, and that layer of the gum itself and as it's swooshed and squished by people trotting on it and weathered by wind and rain it can create more little sub pockets of moisture which can make it easier for these microbes to grow and thrive the thing is other things can sneak in there and also colonize this perfect breeding ground for microbes as well so not only do you get the microbiome of the person who chewed it but you can also end up with a atmospheric snapshot of whatever microbes decided to join in on this new little community that they could find on the ground. And so that's what the researchers were really trying to dive into. If you were to try and use these scraps of wasted chewing gum for maybe perhaps monitoring the oral health of a community or perhaps using it for forensic investigation, you want to know what other dangers could be lurking in there and what else we could learn from studying them. So the researchers collected samples Eight chewing gum samples in five different countries were scraped up using sterilized equipment, transported safely back to the researchers' home lab where they were analyzed in great detail. Now, the countries include Greece, Spain, Turkey, and surprisingly, Singapore. Now, why I say surprisingly is because the improper discarding of chewing gum in Singapore is quite actually illegal and can be severely fined. So the fact that they found any there is pretty surprising in and of itself. But once they brought these back to the lab, they analysed, the, using a genetic method, the bacterial profiles of what were found inside the samples. Now, what they saw was that not one of those samples really matched another. And it wasn't just one species of microbes that were living in this bacteria, but rather heaps and heaps. In fact, 
in the Singapore case, it was incredibly highly biodiverse, with 427 different identified taxa of microbes living on that one sample. That is crazy to think about. But importantly, there was some regional diversity that could be found. The genus Corexuria was found in 55% frequency, and around Sphenogonomus was also found around 40%. These were the most abundant, particularly in the samples from Singapore and France. Whereas in other samples, the most frequent species found were Dinocosis, with a frequency of around 25%. So from this, you can piece together the fact that different regions have their own microbiomes in the local environment. In fact, in the Mediterranean samples, Spain, Greece, Turkey, they all shared some pretty common amounts of species, the Blastocus and the Nestocoronia. Now, these were found really well and strongly prevalent in the samples from these regions, but not so much in France and say Singapore. So this means that either the microbiomes of the people's mouths in these regions are different, which is certainly possible, but also the environmental microbiome would also have been different. Now to study the invasion and colonization of these pieces of wasted gum by the microbes in the region, the researchers undertook their own set of controlled experiments. 13 gums were chewed and placed on an outdoor pavement area, a period of around 12 weeks. And then they carried out detailed RNA sequencing on the results to see how the contents of that bacteria in the gum changed over time, to basically track the progression of new species coming in and supplanting the older microbes that were living inside the wasted gums. The most common of the abundant genera inside these wasted gums was mostly streptococcus, which is more than 25% at the start in the control sample. Then after time in the non-control samples, this radically dropped off and other gena started to make their way in. Of course, they were still there in the final sample, but they had been supplanted as a more populous number of genera by others that sort of snuck in and displaced them. And these were non-oral environmental genera like Rubelli microsebum or Spinophagomus or Acinobacter or Pseudonomus. Now, these were found in the gums initially at low values and then they increased and increased and increased over the 12 weeks of the study. This makes sense because these aren't ones normally found in your mouth, but rather in the environment, and they basically snuck into this new environmental condition. So what's important from this is basically, whilst a chewing gum captures a snapshot of someone's mouth microbiome at the time, it's largely supplaced by instead of this oral group of microbes with rather an environmental group of microbes in just a few weeks. And you have this really interesting case of microbiome interaction where they have one community being supplanted by another. But when we talk about the supplanting and colonization of this new environment, this bit of wasted gum, some rapid ones really sneak in there quite quickly. These environmental bacteria like Coceria or Modernus bacter or Dionychus, they can sneak in really quickly, and they can be found from samples all over the world. But then there's another slow second wave of microbial colonizers that also make their way into the gum substrate over a longer period of time. Now, why bother knowing about all these bacteria inside a piece of wasted chewing gum? Well, if you understand the type of bacteria that come into a piece of chewing gum, you can learn some interesting things about how you make a nice home for some bacteria to live in. And that in and of itself is interesting. But what's more interesting is how this could be used. Because after all, the end result that everyone would love is not to have this chewing gum on the ground causing problems and making pollution. 
If you could find some way for this to naturally dissolve, well, that would be great. And that's where this bacteria harvesting or colonization may actually be turned out to be a tool for good. Because if you could choose the right environment and make the material, the chemical basis of this rubber base, able to be eaten by certain common types of bacteria that naturally want to try and dive into it, then not only do you make a great food source for the bacteria to chow down on and live it, but also you would make something that they could help contribute to breaking down of the, the gum itself. Because there's plenty of bacteria out there that love chewing down and breaking down plastics. We know this. And they like breaking down other types of chemical materials or rubbers. So as long as you designed the gum itself to have the right chemical composition, it's certainly possible to make a gum that will get colonized quickly by environmental bacteria and then rapidly disintegrated by that very bacteria. That would be amazing because then you wouldn't have to worry about this mess in the first place. So this is some fascinating research published in the journal Scientific Reports about the way in which gum can capture a snapshot of not just the oral microbiome, but also the environment. And how this can vary over time and how different waves of colonization of different bacteria sneak into this little bit of gum and lays the groundwork for what could be done to help use this new knowledge to perhaps make a way for the gums itself to be broken down naturally, even if they're improperly discarded. And that's why this is awarded the Ig Nobel Prize in Ecology. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Rhinoceros is hanging upside down to tales of how chewing gum left alone can get interrupted and colonised by various forms of bacteria. We found out about some of this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.